Let's hear from Nicholas. Stop right now. What are you, my dad? Nicholas, man. That, you know what? That's, that is true. He's a good man for letting me uh, be your pastor, Paul. I, uh, that's got to be weird. You're right. I could be your son. <laughs> uh, yeah, my name is Nicholas. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I haven't been called that in a long time. Uh, that was what mom reserved for when I was in trouble, right? The full, the full name comes out in those moments when you know uh, wrath is coming down. Uh, my name's Nick. Uh, welcome to Mercy Hill. If this is your first time, glad to have you with us. Um, I am just going to get us into God's Word here this morning. So uh, we give significant amount of time every service to opening the Word of God because we believe that ultimately it's not going to be us. It's not going to be my words or some leader in this church or even you guys, as great as you are. Uh, it's not going to be our word that's going to guide this place. Our vision is going to be his. And so we give our time to diving into the scriptures to learn about the heart of God, uh, his will for us, and uh, the way of salvation. Let's, let's dive into uh, the Gospel of Luke this morning, if you have a Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, we'll have a couple guys uh, bring one to you. It's our gift to you if you if you don't own one, or if you know someone who who might need it, or if you just simply don't have an ESV translation, uh, which I prefer, I like. Uh, you're free to keep it. But again, in the New Testament, you have the uh, four Gospels. There, Luke is the third. And we're in chapter eleven. Um, the verses are those little little numbers, verses 37 to 54. We'll give you a moment to get there. We'll read it, pray, and, and uh, dive in here. Okay, verse 37 of Luke 11. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like, like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, <laughs> you got to love this. <laughs> Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, 
so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself, and you hindered those who were entering. And then verses 53 and 54, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. There's a lot there. Let's pray. God, what we're after here this morning is the secret things being brought to light. The stuff that's inside of us. The stuff that we try to keep from view of the public. The stuff that only perhaps you know. God, what we want today is for your light, the light of your mercy and grace, to reach us there. For us to lay down, (laughs) lay down uh, uh, the walls, lay down the facade, lay down the fig leaf, lay down whatever it is we're hiding behind, and be honest with you, our Creator and our Redeemer. Could you love us enough to enter into these spaces? And I pray, God, that you would do that through your word, by your spirit. God, go where I can't go. Go where perhaps everyone in this room is scared to go. And heal us at levels perhaps we didn't even know we could find healing today. In your name I ask these things. Amen. Um, okay, there's a lot here. Not going to be able to cover it all uh, effectively, but nonetheless, I'll try. One thing I'll say at the beginning is, uh, as I kind of read through this text throughout the week and things, one word kind of came to mind for me. It's not exactly a happy word. Uh, doesn't make you feel good necessarily, but I do think it is uh, what arises in this text, and it's the word duplicity. Duplicity um, comes from a Latin root that means twofold. And we get that because we use words like duplicate, right? So take one and make another copy, make a second, or duplex. I've got a room here and a room here, put it in one, and now you've got these two in one, a duplex, right? Well, duplicity is this idea that there are, in fact, two of me. That I am presenting something on the outside that is not true of me on the inside. There is an external, an exterior, and then there's what's really going on in here. Duplicity. Two Nick Webbers put forward. I present well, but I mean ill. I smile wide, but there's a serpent coiling inside. We're not foreign to the idea at all. In fact, if you watch or read the news, perfect 
troubling illustration of this this past week. As, um, you know, Bill Cosby is convicted of whatever else and bled off to prison. A guy we, we once called America's dad. Right? I'm not trying to say I know the ins and outs of all this, but this is how it works. There's an exterior presentation. Playing with kids, America's dad, the, 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 the face of jello, for goodness sake, pudding. And yet, on the interior, on the inside, there's a different story being written. There's a different reality playing out. And what we project is not, a lot of times, who we really are. And what we have to face is that this is not just something that we see in this text. It's not just something that we see in the headlines out there somewhere. It's something that we find in our own lives, in our own hearts. That we are prone to this idea of duplicity, prone to this idea of presenting something I'm not while I hide in here. Whether it's from fear, or it's some secret sin, or it's whatever else. Duplicity. Now, to set up uh, Jesus' discussion with these Jewish leaders in our text here, there is something I, I want to say, actually, first about the nature of human beings in general. Um, you remember that according to the scriptures, uh, we are composed, human beings, uh, of, of essentially two basic realities. Body, soul. So God forms man from the dust, body, and he breathes life into us, soul. There is, in other words, an external reality, a physical material reality, and then something inside, something immaterial, the soul. This, in fact, is what Jesus is getting at in verse 40 of our text when he says, Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Body, soul. He doesn't just want your body. He wants your heart. He wants what's inside. But there's two basic realities, and we were designed, created by God, to have those realities functioning together, integrated as a whole, as a unity. So that what was in is what was out. There's integrity, there's honesty, there's transparency. You know me through and through. But then with the fall, moving from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3, with the fall, there's this, what you might call disintegration. What was integrated, what was a unity, body and soul, becomes disintegrated. The two start to separate, and now there is this kind of stunning reality, or stunning possibility, where I can present on the outside something that's not true of me on the inside. I can write a story out here and a completely different one in here. I can do the right thing for the wrong reason. I can do the good with evil intent. There's disintegration between body and soul. What is on the outside now isn't necessarily true of me on the inside. Really what we might call this is the fig leaf effect. If you remember how Genesis 3 goes, uh, great. If you don't, 
quick refresher. Uh, when Adam and Eve, well, I should say before they sin, we're told that they're naked and unashamed. That isn't intended to be weird. It just means they were integrated fully. There was nothing that needed to be hidden about them. What was inside was true of what's outside. There's no game being played. It's just honesty, authenticity, walking with God. But after the fall, after sin, suddenly they realize, whoa, I made a mess of things. And I don't want others to see it. I certainly don't want God to see it. So then they do what? They start to sew together fig leaves and do something to try to hide, to cover this. To put something on the outside, even though it's not true of them, on the inside. The fig leaf effect. This sort of hiding that we can do with one another and with God. We even start to buy into that lie sometimes ourselves. Oh, this is who I am. The crazy thing, as you turn the page to Genesis 4, what you realize is that one of the major fig leaves that human beings will start to use to try to hide, to present something different on the outside, is religion. It's religion. We can actually use our, 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 our worship, our religion, our following of God as a way of hiding the stuff that's really going on in here. So Cain and Abel, I don't know if you remember this, this is the beginning of people in our culture talk about the worship wars and how evangelicals and Protestants, they're all fighting. Well, Genesis 4 is the beginning of the worship war, you might say, because Cain and Abel show up and they both on the outside look like they're doing basically the same thing, bringing an offering, a sacrifice to God in what would look like worship. But what we come to find out is that while Abel's heart is truly invested and engaged in that offering, Cain has other motives uh, in his heart. Maybe it's competition with his brother. Maybe it's wanting something from God for himself and trying to get that. Not quite sure. But what we do know is when God puts his finger on it and says, listen, learn from Abel. We can get right here. Watch out for sin. It's crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Well, Cain doesn't go, God, I'm sorry, and kind of bridge the gap between the, the interior and exterior by repentance and faith. No, instead he just, he just kind of steals that, that, that disintegration and he, he lashes out on his brother, lies in wait for him and kills him. I don't like this guy being better than me. I don't want that to be what God says. It doesn't make me feel good. So what you find out is that his offering, his religion, his all that stuff was not ever for God and love for God or others. It had something to do with himself. And that gets exposed. This fig leaf kind of breaks down and we see his heart. Now I say all of this, you're probably wondering, where, where are we going with this? I say all of this because that's really what's happening here in our text. Duplicity, disintegration, the use of religion to cover and hide the reality of my heart, what's going on on the inside. Jesus is taking this issue head on. We're going to look at three things here. Uh, First, the diagnosis 
Jesus is going to point out the duplicity. He's going to point out this disintegration, the, the, the division between outside and inside and these uh, religious leaders' lives, the Pharisees, the lawyers. Um, second, we'll look at the symptoms. So not only is he going to diagnose it, but he's going to tell us how he knows. There are certain things that are going to indicate that this is going on in a person's life. And we'll look at just a few of those symptoms. And then finally, we'll, 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 we'll uh, land on, on this idea of the cure and see how, how Jesus provides the way to healing, the way back to integration, we might say, the way of redemption, the way of wholeness, salvation. So first, the uh, the diagnosis. Now, um, before I really dive into this, let me at least kind of say a few introductory words to set the scene that's before us. Um, as is often the case, Jesus is ministering around the table. He's he's ministering around either lunch, dinner, we're not quite sure which, but uh, hanging out with guys around the table eating food. And um, I, I I thought... It was worth a mention. I've said this numerous times, but I think it's always worth pointing out that uh, uh, one of the things we, I love about Jesus' life is that the way he does mission is kind of contrary to what we might think. Uh, we think of mission or evangelism as we've got to get this program going, we've got to get this crusade going, we've got to do some fancy, you know, I'm waiting on my church to do some fancy, flashy event that I can then invite people to. Jesus' approach to mission is much more organic. It's much more every day. It's not so much adding programs and things. It's just kind of uh, living everyday life with open eyes and as an everyday missionary. So when he gets an invite to come to the table to eat some food with these guys, that's a missional opportunity. That's where he does his ministry. That's how he's going to reach them. And the thought um, that's important for us from this is just... Are, are, are we walking with, with open eyes? We who want to be disciples, we who want to be uh, missionaries for Jesus. How many opportunities do we pass by? You know, are the people uh, in the line in front of us at the grocery store or at the coffee shop or whatever, are, are, are these people kind of a nuisance in the way of our agenda or are they the mission field? In the midst of our everyday stuff, are we seeing how uh, God has put us on mission? Or to put it another way, more specifically related to um, the text at hand, when is the last time? And this convicts me. When is the last time that you actually carved out an hour, two, whatever? Maybe said yes to that coworker who asked you to lunch, even though you wish you had some downtime for yourself or some extra time to get some work done. When's the last time you actually went to to grab food, sit around a table with someone who's not walking with Jesus. Just to ask questions, hear more of their story, their heart, learn ways you can pray, serve, bring the good news of Jesus to them. Because that is a big part of Jesus' missional program. Eating. I think we can handle it. I think we can do it. I'd encourage you to pray on that. But here Jesus is about to gather with these Jewish leaders and, um, and they're around this table. Now, they're all washing up and things like that. And he just casually skips that part and sits down. Now, the people gathered around see him skip the washings and things and go, they start whispering among themselves. They start to get worked up. The word in our text is astonished. 
They're astonished. They're amazed. Now, a few things about what's happening here, just for clarification. First, we're not talking about hygiene, okay? Like, I know some of us, you're like me, you probably had one of those moms, right, who dinner's ready, calls you in from outside. Oh, no, son, don't you just sit down at the table. You've been playing with dirt, playing with bugs, throwing rocks. You don't just sit down and eat food before you wash your hands, right? She was astonished. That's not what this is. This isn't hygiene. This isn't wash your hands and get off the the physical dirt. This is a, a, a ritual, a religious act that Jesus is neglecting. It's ceremonial cleanness, according to uh, the Pharisees and lawyers, that 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 Jesus is is not meeting up uh, or matching those standards. But second. Though uh, this Pharisee in particular is getting all worked up over something seemingly biblical, like ceremonial cleanness, what we need to understand is actually what Jesus is uh, not doing, what he is breaking, is not so much something that derives from the Mosaic law, but something that through years of tradition, these men have kind of extrapolated and drawn out and added to the law. So certainly there are some things for priests or others where there would be certain washings of the hands as they came to the temple. But then these Pharisees and these other guys were bringing this stuff into the everyday saying, listen, we want to be extra holy. So we need to do this. If you're a good Jew, you're going to do X, Y and Z and wash this way and that way before you even eat your dinner. And so we need to know not only is it not just hygiene, but supposedly it's ceremonial cleanness. But beyond that, it's not ceremonial cleanness according to the Bible standards, but some other standards imposed by these religious leaders. It's what Mark would call the tradition of the elders. So extra stuff added to the Bible, and Jesus isn't playing game. He isn't playing ball. He's, he's not matching up. Third thing to note, and I love this, is that Jesus does this on purpose. It's not like he just doesn't know that these are the rules. It's not like he just doesn't know that this is kind of what they would be expecting or wanting him to do. Oh, he knows. And he goes after the idols that are reigning in their heart. He goes after, he kind of pokes at the fig leaf that they are hiding behind. He, he kind of coaxes out the snake, if you will, in hopes of, of, of healing the heart. Exposing stuff and bringing them to God in a real honest way. Not this game that they're playing. So he knows. He does it on purpose. Now for the diagnosis. Um, Jesus is going to point out the duplicity, the disintegration, the breakdown between their external presentation and their internal reality. And he's going to do it actually by way of giving us just a couple of pictures. A couple of pretty profound illustrations or images. The first comes straight away there in verse 39. He says this, the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. He says, all right, you want to talk about dinner time? You want to talk about washing things? Let's talk about the cup and the dish. You're like a, like a cup that's sparkling clean on the outside, but on the inside, it's got that crusty stuff in it. Like you would never want to drink out of that. I'd much rather have a dirty outside and a clean inside where my liquid is, right? He's saying, look, you look all nice on the outside. Inside's a mess. Inside is filthy. 
There's duplicity going on, disintegration here. Something's different on the outside than what's on the inside. And then he goes on down in verse 44 and gives us another picture. And I'd say it kind of ups the ante a little bit. It gets even more severe. This image comes with a little bit more force. We're not just talking about dirty dishes anymore. Now we're talking about dead people. He says this, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So in other words, on the surface, you look like you're alive. You look like a nice place to take a stroll or sit down for a picnic with your kids or whatever. But truthfully, if you scratch underneath the topsoil just a little bit, there's bones laying there. There's dead men there. So he uses two illustrations, two images, pictures, to kind of get at the same basic diagnosis. You have something on the outside. It's not true of you on the inside. But I I should say one more thing. Because there's another layer to this second image that is uh, incredibly profound and ironic. And it just shows the the, uh, wisdom, the brilliance of Jesus. Getting at our idols and things. So for the uh, Jew, like these guys, um, who are scrupulous and following the Old Testament law and all this, well, in the Mosaic law, Numbers um, 19.16 makes it plain. To come into contact with a grave makes you unclean. Okay, To come into contact with the dead in any way, even a graveside or something like that, makes you unclean. Here's what Jesus is saying when he calls these people unmarked graves. He says, listen, this whole discussion now is emerging because you're calling me ceremonially unclean according to your standards. But I am telling you, it is you who are unclean. And more than that, more than that, all these people who walk over you, come into contact with you, think you're holy, think you're righteous, think you're great, you are actually making them unclean as well. You think I'm spreading the filth. It's you. That makes for an awkward dinner party, right? (laughs) But Jesus loves them enough to go there. You know that, right? I mean, this is just side note. Thanksgiving's coming up, whatever, holidays come up. You know how you have those things, like especially Jesus, if you bring him up, if you go there, it's going to get awkward with certain people. Just think about it. Jesus knows that, but he loves him enough to go there. Now, there is uh, one more thing I want to say before I move to the idea of, of the, the symptoms that Jesus identifies. Uh, because I think some of us that read this carefully, uh, you probably noticed even just on a, on a superficial kind of uh, glance at this text, you notice that Jesus is, is upset. He doesn't seem like the, the sheep stroking uh, uh nice, glowing, you know, uh, effeminate Jesus that's often pictured. He seems like, I might say he sounds a little angry, a little bit upset. He's using harsh language. It doesn't sound so nice. It's like the gloves are coming off and Jesus is calling these guys into the ring. And I want to address that for a moment. I mean, you saw that, right? So if you notice verse 40, he says, you fools, 
What? That doesn't sound very kind. Or verse 42 in other places. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. Just keep laying on woe after woe after woe. And I mentioned it as, as we were reading the text even. Um, one of the experts in the Mosaic law as Jesus is doing this, a, a lawyer speaks up. Uh, again, don't think law and order. Law and order. Think a lawyer who's like, uh, a, an expert in the Mosaic law speaks up and says, listen, you realize what you're doing, right? You're insulting me in all the stuff that you're saying. And what does Jesus do? Does he back up and go, oh, you're right. I, I get a little out of hand. I'm sorry. Let me dial that back. Forgive me. No, he says, okay, you want in the ring too? Let's go. And we have to step back from that and go, okay, what is going on, Jesus? Is this just you had a bad night sleeping out on the hillside? You're a little hangry because things are, you know, lunch isn't progressing as you had hoped. Or is there something more? And obviously we know there's something more. Here's what I think is happening. I think Jesus knows what's at stake. When he confronts these religious leaders, this is when his, his language is always ramped up. He knows what's at stake. Here's what he knows. He knows that that good uh, um, um, Jews that want to follow Yahweh are looking to these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the lawyers, to help them. Teach me what God looks like and and what he what he demands of me and how I can know the way of life and and all the Jews are looking to these religious leaders. To tell them that sort of thing. And so Jesus knows, man, I have to make this plain. We are not on the same team. We are not talking about the same God. Do not think that they are representing the Yahweh that I know as my father. Because they're not. And so for everyone looking in and for you and I, he wants to make it plain. There is a division here. It's not just, oh, Jesus is kind of a little bit, you know, radical, but he's still with those guys. No, he needs to make it clear. They are not teaching truth. And here's what I love about this. Here's why this is good news. Here's why his anger here or his, his, his intense language is good news for us. And it's even good news for the, the Pharisees and the lawyers. It's good news because what he won't put up with is the sort of religion that they're promoting, which is external behavior, conformity to law standards while inside is dead. And the heart remains set on other idols, not on God and not in love for other people. And Jesus is saying, I will not put up with that sort of teaching because my God has so much more for you. It's about heart transformation. It's about the love of God breaking over, breaking into, breaking through the fig leaves of the sinner, overwhelming the heart. The Holy Spirit taking hard, dead, crusty things and making them soft and alive. In love for him and love for others. It's about real, authentic stuff. It's about coming out of hiding and finding life. So I'm not going to let you settle for just a a set of rules that you kind of feel good about keeping. That way leads to destruction. Destruction. 
I want life for you. It's good news that he's getting a little ramped up in these moments. It's good news. Because he wants us to know the love of God and he wants us to experience true transformation, to be born again so that we can experience what we were designed to experience, integration again, freedom, no more game. This is important. I bring this out because I think so many today still think that Christianity is just kind of this set of rules. Like Christians are the ones who don't cuss. They're the ones who don't watch TV. They're the ones who don't have fun. They don't drink. They don't do this. We have this, we're known by what we don't do and the behaviors that we match up to or whatever. And sometimes we can even buy into that. Jesus is saying, I will not, I will not stand for Christianity being known in that way. Will, will the relationship with God change your behavior? Should we be known as holy and righteous and all these? Yes, but all of that flows from this transformation here as the love of God breaks into the heart of a sinner who's been hiding his whole life. Isn't that cool? It's amazing. So Jesus ramps up his language. He knows the stakes in this debate are too great to mince words. Now, let me bring out a few of the symptoms that I see here. Symptoms of this disintegration or this duplicity that Jesus is trying to, to, to bring out and heal us of. Um, there are a number of things I could bring out here. I'll just identify three uh, for the sake of time and, uh, well, for, for your good as well. <laughs> uh, symptom number one, you major in the minors and minor in the majors. Look at verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus gets at this idea of um, minoring or majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors by talking about this, uh, how these guys would handle their tithes. Tithing, you remember, is, is this idea from the Old Testament of giving 10% of your of your, your wealth, your possessions and things to God. And the Pharisees would do that with scrupulous, uh, obsessive detail. And he's saying, you guys are doing that down to the to the littlest herb. You're giving 10% to God and everything is, is intricate. All the minutiae, you got it. And here's the thing. They thought because of that, that man, we are the holiest of the holy. We are exemplary. 10% of even the smallest, littlest thing in my life I give to God. And Jesus is saying, you've missed the big things. In the midst of all the little things, you miss the big things. Like justice and love. Crazy thing, when you look at these, uh, the legislation um, concerning tithing and things in the Old Testament. What you come to find out, I think, is that you see God is that God doesn't want your stuff. Let's just get that clear right away. God doesn't need your stuff. He doesn't want you. He made your stuff. He gave you the stuff. He doesn't need it back. There's something else he's after. And here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to cultivate in you a grateful and generous heart. That's what we see. 
He's trying to remind them by calling for a tithe to be given back to him. He's he's trying to remind them of his faithfulness and his provision. And he's trying to cultivate in them an awareness of that so that they have these these grateful hearts. And they're generous with their stuff because they know God gave it all to them in the first place. So the point is to get at the heart and to to develop, cultivate a heart of love for God and love for others. How you handle the 10% was intended to set the tone for how you'd handle the other 90. Because you remember, wow, it's all from him in the first place. He's going to provide for us. It's going to be fine. He's got my heart. Here's my heart. Lord, take it. Everything else, whatever you want to do with me, it's yours. But instead, these guys were taking the tide and going in the opposite direction. They were using it to draw lines, to build walls. What they were doing is saying, all right, all right, break out the scales, break out the scales. All right, here's my 10%. Draw that line. Now, God, that's your piece. That's your cut. All right, fine, fine. That's your cut. This other 90% is mine. It's mine. I gave you what you wanted. Now, let me go and get what I want with what's left. He's going, you missed it. You missed it. It's about relationship with God and, and generous, you know, hearts that flow from that gratitude, worship. Not give me your stuff and then go get the things you care about. Don't care about me. I love you. That's the point of this whole exchange. And the, the dangerous thing about this fig leaf religion stuff is that these guys, while they were in such sin, while they were majoring in the minors, actually were self-congratulating. Actually, we're feeling justified and holy, even at the same time as their activities sealed their condemnation and their sin as they minored in the major things of love for God and other people. That's the danger here. Now, when I was in seminary, uh, I must say, while there was so much. And honestly, almost every time I go to prepare a sermon, I go, thank you, God, for my time in seminary. I learned so much about the scriptures. And I remember preaching sermons for f- week after week for five years without seminary uh, and, and the things I had learned there. And it was like every week I'm going, what does that mean? What am I doing with that? Every week was just this stressful ordeal because I, I wanted to be true to the scriptures, but I didn't have a background really of, of, of studying them deeply. So I'm so grateful for all the stuff I learned there. But I will tell you, gosh, there were times where I thought, man, I bet you Jesus could walk into this room right now and talk to us like he talks to this Pharisee here. You guys are majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. You love your theological distinctions and parsing out all this stuff and the debates that come over the minutia of the scriptures while you neglect the mission. You have the gospel. Who's taking it to them? Yes, the goal was to sit in that and then go, but still you kind of get stuck there. There's this danger in it where you kind of get into your own little world and you miss the the big picture of what knowing God is supposed to do. Who cares if you know Greek and Hebrew if you don't have the courage or the heart to walk across the street and tell your neighbor about Jesus? Who cares? Doesn't mean that knowing Greek and Hebrew is bad. 
just means it's not the point. Just like Jesus says, you should have done the little things, but don't neglect the big things. This was to lead you there. God forbid that we become a church that's known for this sort of stuff. Like, oh, they got good Bible studies at that church. Man, that pastor preaches a good sermon. They are meticulous about their practices and their little behavior things and their spiritual disciplines. But I don't think I've ever seen them serve the city. Feels a little crusty whenever I talk to them. Like they're just waiting to point out the stuff I'm doing that's wrong. I don't see concern for justice. The oppressed around us. Love for God. So there's this danger in the midst of this stuff that it doesn't lead where it was intended to lead. And that's when you kind of know that your religion has kind of become a fig leaf. You're using it to justify yourself, feel good about yourself, but at the end of the day, you don't really have a concern for God or for other people. It's for you. That's what Jesus is getting at here. It's not about love. It's not... You've heard enough on this one. <sighs> Symptom number two. You savor the show. You savor the show. Look at verse 43 now with me. Woe to you Pharisees, Jesus says, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So they like the honor. They like the esteem that came with their religious position and authority. It felt good to be recognized and admired. They loved it. Hey, pastor. <laughs> oh, that was a great sermon last Sunday. Thanks. Thank you so much. And in your heart, you're just loving it, right? Far too often, men use their service of God as an underhanded attempt to unseat Him. Did you hear that? In other words, while they're praising Him with their lips, they're craving praise for themselves in their hearts. So these guys, for doing all this stuff and all the time. Did you hear how much they tithe? Do you hear how scrupulous they are in their disciplines? Wow, that guy is holy. Praise God. Praise God. Just loving it. In their service of God, attempting to unseat him and become God themselves. Craving praise for me. I recently came across this quote from... The late Puritan, um, perhaps you've heard of him, John Owen. And uh, when I read it, uh, it just cut me to the heart. And I printed it out, put it on the side of my... This is the great thing about being a Christian when you know the grace of God, is the things that cut you to the heart and actually hurt you, you know we're there to heal you, because you know His grace. It's like, I've got to have that in front of me every day. I love that. Hit me again. (laughs) (laughs) Let me read this to you. It's a bit archaic in its language, but it's profound. John Owen writes this. A minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public. But what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. Do you hear that? What he's saying is, Who cares how big your church is? 
Who cares how, how, if all the pews are filled? Does this not the measure of a Christian or a minister? Who cares if you look successful to the world and they're all talking about you and your church is the buzz in town? I mean, yes, it's great if that's promoting the gospel and all of that. Sure, fine. But he's saying your heart can't be settled on those things. What matters is who you are on your knees before God in secret. That's what exposes the real you. You can praise and give a great Bible study and all that, all for the reason of self-glory and self-love. Who are you when no one is looking? Are you dependent on God? Are you worshiping God? Are you loving Him? Or are you reliant on self and other things and working to get that next, you know, goal achieved for your ego and building up, you know, the, the, the little, you know, patches or medals on your fig leaf? I read that and I was on the floor. But you need to think about this for yourself and the way that you walk as a Christian or the way that you pursue work or other things. How do you feel when your labor goes unnoticed by others? Let me just ask you a few questions. Is it enough to know that God sees every cup of water you give in Jesus' name and will reward you for it? Or must other people see and praise you for it as well? When people pass over you in preference for another, how do you respond? Are you a different person when you know others are watching? Is there a serious distinction between who you are in public and who you are in private? When people miss the good that you did, do you try to find a way to promote it? You might not have a press team like the president or whatever. Hey, get the cameras rolling. I'm about to hug an orphan. You know, but you do have your own little press team right here. Your little Facebook feed. Make sure we see this. This is us. This is me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at who I am. Well, make sure you see this. I'm good. When people stop patting you on the back, do you stop seeing a reason to serve? Or obey God? Or is love for God and others the unchanging, motivating factor? Is there a secret exchange always going on between you and God where He's enough for you? I don't care how many people fill the pews. I'm going to quit ministry if this church doesn't. What? And then it's just a fig leaf upholding your identity and get out of here. It's about him. Symptom number three. You'd rather kill than confess. <laughs> you thought maybe these would get easier. <laughs> You'd rather kill than confess. Jesus gives us a lot in verses 47 to 51, but the basic sense is that God has been pursuing them with prophet after prophet, year after year, saying, listen, I see what's in your heart. You're not fooling me. Repent and return. And they would rather kill those prophets 
then confess to what's inside. That's what Jesus is saying there when he talks about the blood of Abel and the blood of Zechariah being on your hands. That's why I mentioned Abel even in the beginning. He's saying you guys are like Cain. The crazy thing with the Abel and Zechariah thing is in the, the way the Hebrew Bible was ordered, Abel is the first murder recorded in the first book. Zechariah, the last murder recorded in the last book. He's saying, it's been going on the entire time. And you're just following suit. Just like Cain. Just like King Joash murdered Zechariah right there in the temple without a thought about Yahweh who dwells within. Let me ask you some more questions then. How do you respond when someone points out sin in your life? When someone touches on on, on something behind the fig leaf? How do you respond? Do you listen? Invite discussion? Pray and repent where appropriate? Or do you dress for war? Okay, you want to talk about me? (laughs) I got plenty on you. Thank you very much. Rather kill than confess. When your heart is open to God, you'll be open to correction. You'll be open to being wrong. Your whole identity isn't staked on your image. It's not staked on your performance, your righteousness. It's on God and the acceptance and righteousness that you have in Christ. So you can hear another person out without getting all worked up because in many ways you agree with them. Oh, I know there's stuff there that I don't even see yet. So maybe you're an, uh, an instrument of mercy coming to help heal. You think I'm there all the time? Just ask Megan. I'm not. (laughs) Self-righteous people, for all of their apparent confidence and strength, are actually the most insecure people on the planet. Why? Because they are always having to uphold and defend something that they know in their hearts isn't true of them. They always have the press have to have the press cameras rolling when they're doing something good. And they always have to silence the critics when they identify something bad. It's an anxious affair. It's an insecure affair. Because it's not ultimately true of them on the inside and they won't own it. They'd rather kill than confess. In fact, that's what these guys are going to do as we know to Jesus. And you see that there, verse 53, 54. They're not changed. They're ready to kill. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Even the language recalls Cain lying in the field waiting for Abel, waiting to pounce. And these men like that, waiting, waiting for an opportunity to kill Jesus. Surprisingly, ironically, 
this is what leads us to the last piece for this morning, namely the cure. How we get right. These men are trying to put an end to Jesus' mission and ministry, but in killing him, truly they help him complete it. Do you catch that? That's what's so amazing about this. They're trying to get an end, put an end to this guy. Really, all they do is help him fulfill his mission in the first place. Because Jesus is not just another prophet, right? He's not just another prophet in a long line of prophets. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. When they killed him, they inadvertently developed the cure. They became priests in a, in a, in a true sense, offering up the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. And that's what's so amazing about our God is he he takes the worst expression of human sin and rebellion imaginable. He turns it on its head and then he throws it back on us in mercy and grace. He makes it the means of forgiveness and calls us out of hiding once more. It's so amazing. The author of Hebrews tells us, and I want you to hear this today, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is Hebrews 12, 24. In Genesis 4, the blood of Abel, God says, is crying out from the ground. He hears it. He approaches Cain. He says, man, it's crying out for vengeance and justice. So he curses Cain. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word, the author of Hebrews says. It's crying out from the cross, but not for our condemnation, for our pardon, for our forgiveness. For our justification, sinners though we are. Now you remember the initial conflict. This is where I'll end here. The initial conflict that occasioned this whole discussion with these religious leaders around the table. You remember this, right? It was the washing of hands. Well, I was reading one commentator on why they would do that. And here's what He said, before eating anything, scrupulous Jews had water poured over their hands to remove the defilement contracted by their contact with a sinful world. So here's their idea. We've been out in the world. The world's a sinful place. Get it off of my hands. Jesus doesn't wash his hands. What is he saying? It's amazing. He's saying, I'm not interested in getting their sins off of my hands. I've come to get their sins off of them. This isn't about me washing my hands of their sin. It's about me washing their hearts of their sin. I'm not going to wash my hands as if I'm separate from the world. They were scared of the defilement that the sin, uh, you know, the sin stuff in the world could do to them. Jesus, on the other hand, moves towards. He's always hanging out with the sinners, the tax, the people that are honest about what's going on inside. That's why he's come, is to get covered in our filth. 
in the most holy way. And these religious leaders could never understand because they were too busy patching up their fig leaves to see the love of God and the justice, mercy that was Jesus' greatest, greatest goal, motivation. So here he is this morning. And he's calling out to us. Maybe confronting us in a loving way. And as I've been talking, you've been trying to skirt around, you've been trying to... But maybe you're just going, dude, there is something different that I'm presenting here. What's going on in here? Jesus is saying, stop it with the sham. Stop pretending you have, if, if you haven't even come to Christ yet, the idea is, stop pretending you're strong enough. You know you're scared, you know you're weak, you know it's exhausting trying to uphold your identity and these fig leaves and keep hidden and make sure people don't see the things you don't want them to see and see the things you do. You know it's exhausting. Come out and let him heal, let him wash on the inside and you'll experience freedom like you didn't even know was possible. I was talking with Bob yesterday over lunch and his experience of of salvation was just like mine. When you finally come out of hiding and say, I need help. Here's how he explained it. Burdens I didn't even know I was carrying were lifted. I felt the exact same. I'm going, what was that? It's called sin. It's called shame. It's called all the stuff that you've been trying to pile on to cover yourself. It's burdening you. Bring it out. He wants to heal. He wants to forgive. Or maybe others of us, we are Christian. We are trying to follow him. But truth be told, we got that secret stuff that we don't want anyone to know about. And he's saying it's going to kill you. It's not something to be played around with. Come out of hiding. Let's get... Get real. The grace of God is here. He's come to wash us, not just on the outside, but inside. That's what the cross is all about. Let's pray. God, thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in Jesus. Thank you for the covering that we have in him. The washing. The regeneration of our hearts. A greater salvation. A greater word spoken over us. God, I pray for anyone here that feels that duplicity, that feels that disintegration. God, I pray that by your repentance and faith, God, you would bring them to a a wholeness, back to an integrated self where what's inside is true of what's outside and becoming increasingly more so. Thank you that we don't have to be scared to be honest because you've already shown us your commitment to forgive and love to accept and cover and change. Meet us now, we pray. In Jesus' name.